Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. I want to welcome all of you in the room. I want to welcome all of you joining us online, all who are listening on Way FM. It is just good to be together, to grow together, and to study the Scriptures together. Amen? Well, right now we are studying the book of James in the New Testament, and the book of James is one of the books of the Bible that I've always enjoyed. I I even enjoyed reading it when I was a boy because it's messages that were just accessible to me even as a child. They were simple, they were practical, they were powerful. I was born into a Christian family. I grew up in the church and I was taught to follow Jesus and read my Bible and say my prayers from the earliest days I can remember. Of course, some of you, that's not your story. Some of you were not born into Christian families, and and you started your spiritual journeys later, maybe as teenagers, maybe during college, maybe in your 30s when you had kids. Some of you, and you've even shared this with me before, uh, didn't become Christians until after retirement. But I grew up in church. Some of my very earliest memories are in the church. In fact, when I was just a toddler, my parents joined a team of young adults who were sent out from their home church on the east side of Tulsa, Oklahoma to plant a new church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And my earliest faith memories are in that brand new church, which started out renting a a public school building on Sundays for worship. And I can even remember being in an elementary school classroom for Sunday school. And it was there that I was taught to sing songs like This Little Light of Mine and He's Got the Whole World in His Hands and Jesus Loves Me. I was taught how to pray. I was given a basic understanding of the Bible. My parents showed me what commitment to the local church looked like. I mean, if the doors were open, we showed up. And once our church built our own building, we were in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I'm telling you, I went to church at least three times a week, nearly every week of my childhood. Anybody do that? And I was taught the importance of serving my church as well. By the time I was a teenager, I was volunteering in our children's ministry. And we also had this implicit understanding, if not an explicit statement, that being a good Christian meant you don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. Like that's Christianity, you, you go to church and you live clean and you behave yourself and, and you have a personal relationship with Jesus and, and you get ready for heaven. And oh, very occasionally our church would do things like Thanksgiving dinner for people in need in our community and, and once in a while we might have a food drive for the hungry and, and when there was a natural disaster like a tornado, we might organize a group of guys to help with the cleanup. But the emphasis wasn't really on those things. You might say we majored in things like church attendance and good behavior and minored in things like helping the poor and healing the sick and serving the suffering and ministering to people on the margins of society. In fact, that wasn't really our thing. 
And maybe we, we just weren't fully aware of all the needs around us. We were in a suburban, white-collar, very professional community that was fairly affluent, and perhaps the needs were not always so obvious. But a number of years later, I moved to the very urban community of Joliet, Illinois, to plant another church. This time, I was the young adult in my late 20s, and all of a sudden, I was surrounded by poverty and crime, and a level of social and political and ethnic diversity I had never seen before. And I found myself working with families who had loved ones in prison, and we were surrounded by high levels of addiction, and people were dealing with food deprivation, and it was a bit of a culture shock for this Oklahoma boy. And that forced me to start reading scripture in a different way, in a new light, and I'm not sure how I had missed it before, but all of a sudden passages like James chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 surprised me, seemed like a, a much bigger deal to me than they ever had before. If you're not familiar with those scriptures, it says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Is dead. And such verses, and there are many like them, seem to tie an essential, a fundamental, a necessary knot between helping those in need and being a Christ follower. Like faith in Jesus will always be accompanied by the activity of ministry to people living in the margins of society. And yet somehow I'd spent... Nearly the first 30 years of my life going to church, even leading churches without being personally involved much in serving marginalized people. Well, imagine my surprise then. During a particular sermon series, I was teaching on the Gospel of Luke. This was somewhere about the year 2008 when it occurred to me that Jesus defined the Gospel, his Gospel as good news for marginalized people. You say, well, where did he do that? I'm glad you asked. Let's find out from his own mouth. Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 21. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel. Good news, gospel, same word. Good news, gospel, good news, gospel. He has anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on them, on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that's powerful. And I wonder how many of us have actually really thoughtfully pondered these verses 
before. This is Jesus defining his gospel for his listeners, and he defined his gospel as good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, setting the oppressed free, and sharing God's favor. That is the gospel of Jesus. And all of a sudden, I was confronted with the reality that my gospel of church attendance and clean living and good behavior and even a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, it's just me and Jesus. It occurred to me that's not the gospel of Jesus. And so it was then, at 30 years of age, 21 years after being baptized, 10 years after being ordained into Christian ministry, that I converted from the false gospel of cultural Christianity to the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with all of that as helpful context, I wanna bring you to James chapter two. James is, and we, we learned much of this last week, but James is the half-brother of Jesus, both sons of Mary, Jesus by miraculous conception, James, a younger biological son of Mary and Joseph. In fact, Mary and Joseph had a number of children together after Jesus was born. And the story of Jesus and James and their other siblings was, well, it was rather complicated. I mean, how would you like to have Jesus as your older brother? Hey, James, why can't you be like your older brother? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Think there was some resentment there? Well, yes, in fact, there was. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all indicate that there was some real tension and real resentment between these siblings. In, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus even seemed to disown his siblings, implying they were not living in God's will. Mark and Luke tell the same story. John chapter seven, verse five says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, to be fair, if I started telling my older sister Carrie and my two younger brothers, James and Daniel, that I wasn't their full biological brother, but I was in fact the son of God and the savior of the world, they probably wouldn't respond very well either. And so James goes from being this resentful younger brother of Jesus to being a full convert to Jesus to being the most significant leader in the early Jerusalem church to authoring one of the books of the New Testament, the book of James. And even more, if you know his story, you know James was one of the first Christians killed for his faith in Jesus. And if you wonder what in the world happened to turn him around, the only logical explanation is that he saw something so convincing, so significant that he became convinced that his brother Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And that is the son of God and the savior of the world. And you say, well, what could it be that James saw? The answer is he saw his brother's resurrected body. He saw Jesus alive and well after he was crucified and dead. James's conversion, his radical conversion, is powerful evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And years after the resurrection and ascension, as the Jerusalem church was rapidly growing from a handful of people to a church of many thousands, the influence of that church became a threat to Jewish politics and power structures. 
And so those power structures responded with hostility. Acts chapter eight, verse one says, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And James wrote a letter to encourage and instruct these persecuted Christian refugees who are trying to make their way in a new life and live for Jesus with a hard and hostile world all around them. That is the book of James. And if you were here last week, then you know Pastor Gary, he preached an incredible sermon on James chapter one. And he showed us how the Christian faith is a faith that works in the hard times. That because of Jesus, we can not only survive, but we can thrive despite hard and hostile things all around us. Now, that was last week, and if you missed it, you need to catch up. You can go on our Facebook page, our YouTube page, go on our website, you can catch up. I hope you'll do that. You need to hear that message. But that was James chapter one. Today, we're looking at James chapter two. And today, I wanna show you that, that a Christian faith is one that works to invite people from the margins to the middle. That's our big idea for today. A faith that works actively invites people from the margins into the middle. That is the message we want to take away from James chapter two. A faith that works invites people from the margins into the middle. Now, because James chapter two is such a big chapter covering so much ground because we can't possibly get to all of it today, I wanna highlight three sets of verses in this chapter, and I want us to discover three things, and here's the three things. Number one, a faith that works is good news for the outsider. Number two, a faith that works is good news for those in need. And number three, a faith that's not good news for marginalized people is not the faith of Jesus Christ. All right, let's dive in to number one. A faith that works is good news for the outsider. A faith that works is good news for the outsider. James chapter two, verses one through four says this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there or you, you sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Now James 2 begins by telling Christians how they should welcome outsiders into the church. James says, suppose a man comes into your meeting, and that word for meeting means gathering. It's, it's essentially they ch the church service. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting, and remember the context, the, the Christians have been scattered all over Judea and Samaria, and their leaders had all stayed back in Jerusalem, so there was a, a leadership vacuum in these new churches that they started in these new places, and Peter and James and John perhaps would have known how to welcome these outsiders, but Peter, James, and John weren't in these new churches. Persecuted Christians were, and so James is telling them how to welcome outsiders, and here's how James James tells them to welcome outsiders. Here's how. Without favoritism, without discrimination, and without judgment. How does James tell us to welcome outsiders? Without judgment. Everybody say without judgment. How does James tell us to welcome outsiders? What if they look different than us? Say it with me, without judgment. What if they speak a different language than us? What if they think differently than us? What if they have different politics than us? What if they're rich? What if they're poor? You know, we tend to judge different generations, right? What if they're older than us? Say, hey, boomer without judgment, right? What if they're younger than us, those millennials? That's right, say it with me, without judgment. What if they struggle with addiction? What if they've been in prison? What if they've had an abortion? How does James tell us to welcome outsiders? That's right, James says don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism towards the rich guy. He says, don't discriminate against the poor guy. He says, don't show favoritism to one guy or one group over another group. In fact, he warns very clearly in verse four that to discriminate, to judge is evil. To discriminate based on ethnicity, evil. To judge others based on their economics, evil. If you're an insider judging outsiders, James calls that evil. And maybe that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.12, he said, he asked a question, he said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And the answer is, it's not. It's not our business to judge those outside the church, but rather to invite them in and to welcome them in. And that is good news for the outsiders. That is good news for people who are outside of the church. And that's good news for people who are outside the margins of the mainstream, that they're invited into God's kingdom without our judgment. Now, here's where it gets really tough. This is where we have to think through our, the way we view things. If your perspective, if your worldview, if your gospel, yes, even your politics is not good news for outsiders, for the people in the margins, for people outside of the church, then it is not of Jesus. It is not the way of Jesus. A faith that works welcomes all the outsiders, whether rich or poor, or young, or old, or clean, or dirty, or tall, or short, thank God. <laughs> Fat or skinny, immigrant or citizen, black 
white, brown, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. A faith that works welcomes the outsider without judgment, without discrimination, without favoritism, showing equal value to all, inviting them into the church and therefore into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. A faith that works is good news for the outsiders, for those on the margins of society. Number two, a faith that works is good news for those in need. James chapter two, verses 14 through 19 continues. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. Now here, James takes a tough conversation even further and he leans in even harder. He says, not only are we to invite and welcome outsiders into the family, but we are to help meet their needs as well. And, and here's the word James uses to describe meeting needs. The word is deeds. He calls meeting people's needs deeds. Good deeds are when we meet people's needs. When we meet people's needs, we are then doing good deeds. Now, this is coming full circle to what I shared with you a few minutes ago. Because when I read, first read these verses in James, and for many years, I always thought of good deeds as things like going to church or saying my prayers or behaving properly. And I believe that if I went to church and I said my prayers and I behaved and I spent time with the right kind of people and I didn't, you know, cuss and stuff, then I was doing good deeds. But those aren't good deeds. At least not the kind James has in mind. I mean, some of those are spiritual disciplines and they're incredibly important. Others are rules we've just kind of made up that aren't even in the Bible but they're not good deeds. In James chapter two, the word deeds is a word that can be translated as works, as action, as a job, as a thing accomplished. It's like, like what do you do in response to what you see? And here, James defines good deeds as doing something about the physical needs of other people. He specifically mentions clothing the cold, feeding the hungry, and welcoming the poor. And he even uses demons to drive this point. He says, think about the demons. They too believe in God, but they don't help people. What demons do isn't helpful. They don't feed the hungry. They don't clothe the naked. They don't welcome the outsider. If your faith is not good news for those in need, then it's not a faith that works. It's a faith that's dead. Or in the words of James, it's a faith that's useless. And that brings us to number three. A faith that's not good news for the marginalized is not the faith of Jesus Christ. 
James 2, 20 through 24 concludes, such strong words. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You know, sometimes the book of James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And we learned all about the book of Proverbs in our February series called Foolproof. And the book of Proverbs is in the Old Testament. It's a book that helps us discern between wisdom and foolishness. And wisdom, we learned, is what works to make things better. And foolishness is what doesn't work. And it makes things worse. The book of James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us to pray for wisdom. James 2.20 says it's foolish to think a person's faith that has no accompanying good deeds is a saving faith. Well, as many of you may know, these verses have created quite a theological stir over the centuries. So much so that some of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation didn't believe the book of James should be included in the canon of scripture in the Bible. Because it appears as if the apostle Paul and James, the brother of Christ, are at odds over this one. I mean, Paul is so assertive in so many places, most clearly in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by what we do. But James seems to say that we're saved by what we do. And we read that and we say, what do we do with that? Here's what I do with that. Of course, I believe that Paul is correct, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by what we do, but I believe the evidence that our faith is real, the evidence that our faith is real and living and active and authentic is how well we love and treat others, especially people in need. Our faith is authenticated by how well we love and treat those in need. Our faith is authenticated by how well we love and treat those who are different from us. Our faith is authenticated by how well we treat, well, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our faith is authenticated by how well we love and treat those living in the margins of society. And remember Luke chapter four from earlier, Jesus defined people in the margins as the poor and the blind and those in prison and the oppressed. How well do we love them? How well do we treat them? Are we standing up for them? Are we standing with them? We are saved by grace through faith, not by good works or good deeds. And authentic faith in Jesus and his gospel are naturally, essentially, fundamentally, always, 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 always accompanied by good deeds for people in need. And no, we don't do this to be saved. 
And I don't think we even do it out of obedience or obligation, but we do it out of faith, hope, and love. Helping those in need, those who are suffering, those in the margins, that is simply what Christ followers do. And if you don't, Will, in his brash and unabashed, in-your-face style, James seems to question your faith. Now, I'm not questioning your faith, but I am pointing out that a faith that works, listen, and you might write this down, a faith that works is a faith that works for everyone. Everyone. For the rich and for the poor for the healthy and for the sick, for the young and for the old, for those in the mainstream and for those in the margins, for those who have their lives together and for those who are all messed up. A faith that works is a faith that works for every single person. And so when we see people who are different than us, we welcome them, we serve them, we love them without judgment. Because that's what James, more importantly, that's what Jesus and the love of Jesus would have us do. And so that brings us to our takeaway for today. Find a practical way for you and your family to serve people on the margins in our community. In our discipleship path here at First Christian Church, we shared it with you all last fall, the ABCs of discipleship, how we're gonna structure our ministries going forward around this path. The C was contribute sacrificially. We talked about being contributors to church and community. We do pretty good with church. Sometimes we forget in community. Find a practical way for your family to regularly, not just once a year, not just on the holidays, but regularly and lovingly serve people on the margins of our community. And it could help them. It could really help you. But I think most importantly, it could make all of us a little bit more like Jesus. pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.